Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Today we return to our exposition of the book of Romans, specifically focusing on Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 where Paul delights in his obligation to preach the gospel. This morning we return to our exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And so far in our exposition of the first 14 verses, which is where I was last Sunday of chapter 1, I've closely examined the foundation. And that's the point that I tried to drive home to you, is that when oftentimes when you read through a greeting or you read through an introduction, we do it oftentimes, sadly, in a cursory manner, And in doing so, we miss so much that the author is saying and the foundation that he is laying for what he is going to be writing in his letter. And we know that this is Paul's magnum opus, his theological, greatest theological writing of all his New Testament epistles. And so it it, it rung true to me at the very beginning that the way he opens is by not only identifying himself, but dealing with the things specifically it deals with through the greeting and the introduction, that he's laying a foundation for the most weighty theological treatises he's going to write in the New Testament. When we approach this book that way, it really will help us. Now already, for example, and already in chapter 1, Paul has made the focus of his calling and ministry clear to his readers. He tells us in verse 1, it is the gospel of God. He then ascribes authority and reliability to the Holy Scriptures as the revelation of the gospel in verse 2. He says, this gospel of God is that which was spoken of by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So here you already have his, his commitment to the gospel of God, the authority and reliability of the Holy Scriptures in revealing to us that gospel. And next he informs his readers that the gospel of God is about Jesus Christ, the God-man, in verses 3 and 4, so he in, involves Christ, Christology almost immediately in his greeting. And then in verse 6, Paul references the sovereign election of those believers in Rome by referring to them in his words, quote, you, are, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And he reinforces this in verse 7 by referring once again to them as, quote, those who are loved by God and are called to be saints, which means those who are set apart. So there is a sovereign and divine calling upon their lives. God has called them sovereignly and set them apart to be His. Now in verses 8 through 15, which was our text last week, the apostle informs his readers of his incessant prayers for them and their testimony in regards, and the testimony in regards to their faith in verses 8 and 9, as I prayed for you this week, that was ringing loudly in my ears as I thought about that. How Paul said, because of your testimony that has gone throughout the world for your faith, I do not cease in praying for you. And so it really, as I shared that with you last Sunday morning, as I prayed for you, many of you by name throughout this entire week, that has rung over and over again in my mind the necessity of incessantly praying for one another. And I encouraged you to do that, and I hope that you have taken that 
that encouragement to heart and have been doing that throughout the week, that indeed we do need to be praying for one another without ceasing. And then he tells them of his desire to visit them, having been hindered for, from doing so in verses 11 through 13. Someone said to me after last Sunday morning's message, when you hit on Providence, it struck a bell with me. I was hoping that you weren't going to stop, that that's where you want to stay. And I know I moved by that very quickly. And perhaps sometime we'll come back to it. Now in verses 14 and 15, which I remember as I got to the end of last Sunday morning's message, and my time had already expired, a long expired. I was keeping you longer than I should have. I kind of moved through them very quickly. So I want to go back because verses 14 and 15, as you'll see this morning, as I look at verse 16, which is as far as I'm going to get, one verse of the two that I read you, Paul speaks of something that I think is worth taking note of. In verse 14, look at your Bible and look at what he says. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Now, pause for a moment, and I want you to note that word, perhaps even underline it or write it in your notes. He says, obligation. He speaks of obligation. He says, I am under obligation. Now, this is an interesting phrase, but it so clearly does reveal to us Paul's motivation for what he does. If we were to take a look at Acts chapter 9, for example, and we won't for the sake of time this morning, but I'll give you the passages so that you can write them down, go back to them later, and I may read some of them to you. In fact, I will in just a moment. In Acts chapter 9, which records for us Paul's conversion and calling to the gospel ministry, which again is very revealing, we'd find this in chapter 9, verse 15, in the words of our Lord Jesus himself. He says, For he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Ananias and telling Ananias to go back to this home where, where Saul has been taken. And he says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And notice something very important in that verse, that Paul is a chosen instrument. And he's chosen for the specific purpose of carrying the name of Christ. And look at the, the parties to which he is to carry that name. Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then in verse 16 of Romans 9, or of Acts 9, we read, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, how would you like for someone to come to you after you've already been uh, arrested by the Lord Jesus on the road. You've been taken to a house and you're blind and all of a sudden someone you've never met comes to you and tells you the Lord has appeared to him and I've got a word for you and he begins to give you that word and that word is that you are God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings and to the people of Israel. But in doing so, you're going to suffer greatly. Well, you could, you could have left that part out. But that's, that, that was very much a part of it. Now, Paul's conversion and calling were monumental events. I mean, it really did change. I mean, think about just the New Testament you have in your hands. Thirteen of the New Testament epistles are written by him. Twenty-seven books, twenty-seven letters, or four Gospels, three Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of John, and then you have twenty-three other epistles. And of those, thirteen written by the Apostle Paul. So it changed it changed everything, Paul's conversion, because his calling and conversion were monumental events. Immediately, he was both arrested by the Lord Jesus, and at that very moment, and here's what I want you to get when driving that point home, what we read in Romans, 
at that very moment, he was put under divine obligation, even compulsion. And that obligation or compulsion was to preach the gospel. Now, such was the magnitude of this glorious sovereign conversion and calling that in the same chapter in which they are recorded, that is his, his conversion and his calling, in that same chapter that records him, only a few verses down we read these words. Some days, some days with the apostles at Damascus, after some days with the apostles at Damascus, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. So here's his conversion. He regains his sight. He spends, can you imagine, that arranged meeting. Oh, by the way, Ananias goes to the disciples and says, I've got somebody I want to introduce you to. And they go, well, great, who is this? Well, you remember Saul? Can you imagine the fear that moves through their hearts? And yet he brings Saul to them, introduces them to him to them. And Saul spends days with them. Some days, we don't know how many days that actually was, but some days. But here's what really struck me, that immediately after spending those days with the disciples, what did, what did Saul do? Go back home to Tarsus immediately and think about what has just happened in his life? No. He immediately in Damascus goes to the synagogue and begins to preach the gospel, persuading them that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the man who just a few days, maybe a few weeks earlier, had within his possession papers to go to Damascus and arrest believers and have them put into prison, or even worse, put to death. And now he's preaching in the synagogue and professing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And the Jews were amazed. You can imagine, they were amazed at the change in this persecutor of the church. And in verse 22 of Acts chapter 9, we are told he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Remember, I already gave you a little bit of background on the Apostle Paul, very educated person, a rabbi, a Pharisee, who was from a family of Pharisees, schooled in the Hebrew text scriptures, and also the Greek Septuagint, who knew the Word of God, a teacher of the law. And here he is, he confounds the Jewish people in a synagogue there by proving, I love the interesting use of that word, by proving, not just arguing with them, but doing what? Proving through the scriptures that Jesus indeed was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. So what drove him there? What drove him there was his obligation. What drove him there was his compulsion to preach Christ. And so Paul's compulsion, his obligation, never waned. Never, in the decades of his earthly ministry, it never waned. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, we read these words. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, Romans 9, 16, for necessity, listen to what he says, for necessity, it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Oh, another way of saying that I am most miserable if I'm not doing that which I've been called to do. That is to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Now what in the world is he saying? That's an interesting, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 9 is an interesting 
statement there. Paul's point in using the word obligation when writing to the Roman believers is to, in effect, say to them, although I may indeed desire to meet you, I may desire to come to you and even encourage you as well as be encouraged by you, my real reason in desiring to come to you is the obligation that I have. I have by virtue of my calling to bring to you the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, I underline this in my notes because I think this is important for us to get. Paul's obligation to his calling preceded and superseded his own desire to visit the believers in Rome. Paul wanted to get to Rome. It was his dream. It was his personal aspiration to get to Rome and to preach the gospel, to stand in Caesar's court, in fact, and to preach the gospel. He wanted to do that. But what preceded that and superseded that, his own desire of getting there, was his obligation to preach the gospel. Allow me to interject something here. You know whenever I say that, that you're fixing to get in trouble. But as it, because as I write these things during the week, as I'm reading and studying and mulling over these things in my mind, rewriting them, tearing papers up, throwing them in the trash, can't go in my tra- office now and look. I write there, think of these things. While, while some ministers, now listen carefully. While some ministers may not want to or like to admit it, Sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you, sometimes it is our obligation to our calling that keeps us doing what we do. It is our obligation to our calling that keeps us preaching when even it's not comfortable, a comfortable thing to be doing or perhaps there's other things going on. As, I, as I'll go on to say here, let me try to explain. There are those times, thank God, when ministry is its own reward. When you're ministering and you're preaching and just doing that is, is a reward in itself. The joy of preparing to preach, the joy of actually preaching are immensely fulfilling. Shepherding as well. There are those times it's joyful to do those things. It's joyful to shepherd God's flock. It's joyful to study His Word. It's joyful to prepare His message. It's joyful to stand before people and preach the message that you believe the Lord has laid upon your heart through the study of His Word. However... There are those times when things are hard. None of you know anything about that, right? There are those times when things are hard and things are difficult, when shepherding is challenging, even discouraging, but out of obligation. And folks, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. that, Out of obligation, we still prepare to preach, we still study, and we still shepherd, and we still preach the gospel. We still do those things. Always keeping in mind, and this is the motivation behind that, always keeping in mind we are servants, doulos, we are slaves or bond servants of Christ our Lord and ministers and ministers to those who has given to to those who He has given us. You church, you family of Crosswall Church are a stewardship that has been entrusted to me and the elders of this church in regards to the ministry of the gospel. So our obligation first, obviously, is to the call that God has laid upon our lives, but the second and equal part of that obligation is to you, the people to whom God has assigned or entrusted to our care. So I have no, I have no option. 
I have no choice in the matter. I can't simply stand up here this morning and say, I don't feel like doing this. Have there been times when I would honestly have to say that I have walked up here and said, you know, I really don't feel like doing this this morning. I've studied hard. I've read hard. I've written hard. I've done all the things I need to do to prepare. But it's just hard. And maybe I don't want to stand up there and do that. But we do it out of obligation. And that's not a negative thing. One who serves only, listen, one who serves only when he feels like it without any sense of obligation is not much of a servant at all. If you just do it when it's comfortable, without any sense of obligation, just when things are easy, then you're not much of a servant. It's very, when, when things are all just skimming across the top of the water with no virtually no friction at all. It's easy to stand up and do the things you do. But how about when the, when the, currents, and, when the currents are moving strong and the waves are hot, high and tall and they're, they're boisterous? Do we continue to do those things? In Colossians 1.29, which is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, I spoke at the seminary in Jupiter last time, a year or so ago, I actually ministered on this text here, but... In Colossians 1.29, Paul speaks of his ministry to the church. And the Greek word is kopio. It's, it's the word we get toil from. And it's a very, it's a strong word. He speaks of his ministry to the church as toil in, first, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. And then he follows it up by speaking of it as struggling. So it's toil and struggling, which that Greek word there, if it's from, from the word agonizomai, which is the word we get agony from. Or agonizing. So Paul says, he's already told you earlier in those verses, prior to verse 29 of chapter 1 of Colossians, he's told you that the ministry that God has given him is a, is a stewardship entrusted to him. And that stewardship is to make every man mature in Christ, to give them the word of God, that Christ might be, con they might be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And I'm paraphrasing that, but that's in essence what he says there. But he then says, and so doing is toil. It's struggling to do those things. And indeed, it is. So regardless of the fact that there are times of struggling or times of toil, we do it because of obligation. Obligation first to our Lord and obligation secondly to those who God has entrusted to our care. There are those times when the reward of preaching the gospel, listen very carefully, there are those times when the reward of preaching the gospel is the gospel we preach. As a preacher, called by God, a servant of God, and His gospel, I am not deaf. Listen, church, I am not deaf to the gospel I preach. Do you think I wear earmuffs when I'm preaching? That the, the, the voice you hear is the same voice I hear. The words you hear are the same words that I hear. And the conviction that you feel when you hear those words and leave this place are the same conviction that I feel when I hear them and when I leave this place. I'm not neutral to this. I hear myself. And I hear the gospel I preach. And the gospel I preach affects me the same way that I prayed that it affects you. If it doesn't, it's worthless. I'm wasting my time and wasting your time. It is the gospel and it is meant to impact you. Do you not think Paul was impacted by everything he taught? 
Was he not impacted by everything he preached, by every message he ever gave? He was touched by that personally in the innermost part of his own existence and soul, himself being conformed to the image of Christ. This is not just simply a job where we do come up and give a lecture and hope that somebody's enjoyed it so that I can get your accolades at the door. I do appreciate the encouragement. I'm not discouraging that. But we do this because it is the gospel. And we are obligated by the gospel and by the calling of the gospel to do exactly what we do. And I make no bones about that. I told you you were in trouble by me just thinking about something. Let's get back to the text. Not that I'll stay there long, but Romans 4, 1, 14 and 15. But in Romans 1, 14... Paul narrows down that obligation. He narrows down his obligation in context of this particular letter he writes. He says this. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians. Now note those words. Both to the wise and the foolish. They're not four groups. They're actually two groups. And the second part of that statement is, is further definition of what he means by the first part of that statement. Now, certainly, as I just mentioned, Paul was well aware of his obligation to God, but his obligation to God here is seen as an obligation to people. Paul is under divine obligation to preach the gospel to the Greeks, commonly referred to by the Jews as the Gentiles. And he's already alluded to this in verse 5 in the mention of the nations, that he takes the gospel to the nations. And we also saw in Acts 9.15 that I just read to you a moment ago, the, the very same thing that he's called to the nations, to the Gentiles. And in Acts 18, the Jews at Corinth opposed Paul, and it was there and then he made this statement. And listen to Paul's statement. He says, in other words, they rejected him. They scorned his gospel. They, they ridiculed him. And from that, he looked at them and said, from now on, in Acts 18, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Again, those who are educated in the Greek culture. Because that's what the Jews, when they spoke of Gentiles, they usually meant those who were educated in the Greek culture. And listen to Romans chapter 11, verse 13. Or later in Romans 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 13, Paul refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. But the term Gentiles is expanded by Paul when he next mentions, or Greeks speaking of Gentiles, is expanded when he mentions barbarians. You see, Greeks or Gentiles usually refer to those who I said just a moment ago who were educated in Greek culture. They would be the more sophisticated citizens of the Roman Empire. And on the other hand, Barbarians referred to those who were not trained or not educated in the Greek culture. We have a little bit different, more vivid definition of barbarians today. Those who are, those who are violent and uncultured. But in essence, it means pretty much the same thing. There were those who were very uneducated, uncultured, uncouth. Those were the barbarians. And so Paul says, I have an obligation to both the Greeks... To those who are educated, to those who are cultured, he had no problem going to the upper echelon of a, of a society and preaching the gospel. Them, it didn't matter to him. But he also recognized that his obligation were to those who were the uneducated, the uncultured, and the uncouth. 
And that distinction is borne out in the latter part of verse 14 when he said, now tells you who the Greeks are and who the barbarians are, the Greeks being to the wise and the barbarians being to the foolish, or as the King James puts it, the unwise. Paul's point is, and here's the point he's driving home. His point is he is obligated to both. You know what he's saying? I am no respecter of persons. And the gospel is no respecter of of persons. The gospel accomplishes a lot of things, but one thing it accomplishes is this. It levels the playing field. It levels the playing field. It is the great equalizer among men. It puts every man on the very same level, regardless of your social standing, regardless of your social status, regardless of your education, regardless of your income, your bank account, your home. It doesn't matter. It puts every single man on equal footing. And the playing field is completely leveled. And Paul, he didn't preach one gospel here and one gospel there. He preached the gospel to all men because he saw the gospel as that which indeed did do that, level the playing field, making all men equal. All men are equally lost and all men need to be equally saved the same way. In fact, I wrote here, by it men are equally condemned or equally saved. There is not one way of salvation for the wise, for the cultured, and another way for and the sophisticated, and another way for the unwise, the uncultured, and unsophisticated. Every man, every man, when I say man, I'm talking about humanity. Every man, regardless of social standing or status in this world, comes to God the same way. He is spiritually, or I'm sorry, effectually called by the preaching of the gospel of God, the glorious gospel concerning salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every man comes that way. Every single man comes that way. In verse 15, look at what he says. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, Paul expresses his eagerness, that word eagerness to preach the gospel to them. You recall, we have no record of those believers in Rome beforehand ever having had any direct apostolic teaching or preaching. We're not told who founded the church. We're we're pretty much sure perhaps how it started after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when visitors from Rome were in Jerusalem and then went back to Rome after Pentecost and carried the gospel there. But they had no direct apostolic teaching. There was no apostle that went to Rome and started the church, regardless of what some large religious organizations want to tell you. Paul was anxious to bring them the gospel that had been entrusted to them as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God in order to gather fruit for the Lord. That's the reason he wanted to go. That's that's his eagerness there. I want to go preach the gospel among you that I might gather fruit for the Lord. And he was eager to do that. To the apostle, this was yet another opportunity to discharge his calling. This he was indeed eager to do. Everywhere he went... What did he do? Almost immediately upon arriving there, he began to discharge his duties. He began to fulfill his obligation. He walked right into the synagogue and began to preach Christ. 
When they ran him out of the synagogue, he stood in the public square, he began to preach Christ. When they took him to jail, he was in the jail preaching Christ. When they expelled him from the city, he left preaching Christ. 